Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis. And this week, I'll be talking to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the crisis in the Eurozone. Then I talk to Martina Stevis, who's currently in Athens. And finally, Anusha Kaley and John Elledge and Caroline Crampton talk about Heathrow expansion and whether or not we need any new airports. I'm joined in the studio, if we can call it that, by George Eaton, our political editor, and Stephen Bush, the editor of The Staggers. Uh, George, I'm going to ask um, you first of all, because you talked a little bit in your column about um, how Cameron has, has kind of handled the Europe mm. crisis that's ongoing. How you know? I mean, he's in the lucky position, I guess, of not being a eurozone leader. So it's this Greece and its default are not his immediate concern. But is this a is this a crisis or an opportunity for him? Yes, um, I think it is potentially an opportunity because if Greece does leave the euro or even potentially the the EU, then that does strengthen the the argument that you need a fundamental reconfiguration of of the union and what it means. And that presents an opportunity for him to argue for far more looser membership than he would achieve under his current renegotiation proposals. And, and of course, inevitably, when he um, delivered his common statements, um, he focused on the Tunisian, Tunisian atrocity, on the Mediterranean migrant crisis, uh, the Greek crisis, and then uh, his renegotiation, the beginning of it. And I thought Tory MPs might, in the circumstances, sort of hold back from attacking him over his stance and saying this is too feeble, this is too weak. Uh, and of course they did the exact opposite and all went for him. So despite uh, the strong case that his uh, attention should be elsewhere, um, Tory MPs are going to uh, keep banging on about the EU, whatever crises may erupt elsewhere. I did feel slightly sorry for this description of the dinner on Friday night where they had a long discussion about Greece and, and then they had a, and they had a long discussion about migrants in the Mediterranean. And then David Cameron supposedly got kind of like five minutes as a sort of like, mm. like he was a sort of cabaret act between courses where he kind of went, hey, could we talk about, you know, uh, restricting benefits to migrants, please? Um, and I think that's going to be it's going to be very difficult for him to kind of get airtime isn't it really for for what he wants to talk about when there are so many more pressing issues at hand um Stephen I want to move, I'll move to you now and sort of talk about when the so Nigel Farage was on the Sunday politics at the weekend and he said he would le- he would be very happy to lead the out campaign unless they find someone better or I'm, I'm sure they'll find someone better um how enthusiastic is Labour going to be in its participation in the yes 
to Europe campaign? It sort of depends on the leader almost. In the Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper are to a lesser extent, but to still quite a large extent, are both appealing to and come from a bit of the country where their big threat is UKIP in second. In the seats they lost, UKIP, a lot of the time the UKIP vote was a direct Labour to UKIP defection and it was bigger than the margin that the Tories achieved. Um, however, of course, you know, Liz Kendall is an MP for the Midlands. A lot of her support is for sort of weird little bits of the country where there's kind of one or two Labour MPs left. Their big threat is the Tories. Obviously, the 100 Labour MPs they need to get a majority were beaten by the Tories. Mm. Um, so she's less preoccupied by the, the, the UKIP threat in second. And this idea that is quite prevalent in Labour circles than if they are too vocal in the in-out referendum, uh, then it will allow UKIP to do an SNP on them. It, she's the third, sort of, I think, the third most likely person to get it. So it is most likely that Labour will be hesitant. When you say that, that, do an SNP, so this is the idea that the SNP made enormous hay during the independence referendum because they could present it as everyone else is united against us, we're the anti-establishment party. And that presumably is the danger of the EU referendum, that if you have Labour and the Tories in any way sharing a platform, it helps UKIP to go, they're all the same, we're the only one who gives you a voice, right? Yeah, that is their their view. I personally think it's... A- Bunkum, but uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the problem with the uh, there were two problems with the SNP with the referendum. One, you had Scottish Labour MPs who had done no campaigning for twenty years, who then suddenly turned up on people's doorsteps, and uh, yeah, one uh, MP told me of uh, someone who'd come across the board for the campaign, and they knocked on the door of someone who didn't believe the Labour Party could get their address because they couldn't understand why if Labour could have got their address, they hadn't knocked on the door before. That was a far bigger problem. But also, there was no Labour yes to independence. What Labour inadvertently did is they signalled that if you wanted to leave the United Kingdom, Labour wasn't really for you. There will be a, a Labour no. Uh, yeah, there will be. It won't just be Kate Hoey. Um, you know, the, the Greece factor, and you could, we could have a very long and arid argument about whether or not the Eurozone is to blame for what's happening in Greece. But that means you will have people like John Trickett, uh, these prominent members of the new, more left-wing intake will be arguing for an exit. And that will actually be good for the Labour Party. You know, park the argument about whether or not leaving the EU is the right course mm. for Britain. It will be good for Labour that it will not be seen as a, a party line. The one way Labour could madly mishandle the referendum would be if the next leader had a kind of three-line whip on being against, uh, sort of being for staying in. And George, I just want to flick forward to next week before we finish. Um, so it's the the budget, an emergency budget, even though it's quite a long planned emergency budget. So I'm not sure quite how much of an emergency it is. Um, you've written in your column this week about the the top rate of tax and and Osborne's kind of hope that he can bring it down still further and maybe raise the personal allowance. When he's also making twelve billion pounds of cuts, how do those sums add up? Yes, um, they don't really, and it would initially be a revenue loser. But of course, he's under huge political pressure to do it because this will be the first all-conservative budget since Ken Clark's final one in November 1996. The 160 Conservative MPs who have demanded that he reduce the top rate to 40p at something the Lib Dems prevented him from doing in the past. I would be very surprised still, though, if he um, went ahead with this this early on in the, in the Parliament. I think it's the kind of act which you can only perform if it's coupled with sort of greater relief elsewhere and it would be a hideous combination for him to cut the top rate for the top 1.5 percent of taxpayers while uh, also cutting tax credits for for the for the working poor 
um, even though yes, there will be another increase in 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 the personal tax allowance. Um, but there are conservatives who say, look, George Osborne believes uh, the 45p rate is harmful for the economy. He wants to return it to the 40p rate that existed for most of almost all of New Labour's time in power. Your first budget in the honeymoon period is the best chance to do it. So, so, and also the... this is your first time you've actually got a majority. Even people kind of, I guess, there are Tory backbenchers who say, well, show us what this you know means. Even you know, spend some of your political capital. And also, they did just win an election having cut taxes for millionaires and balance the books on the poor. Uh, to be honest, I don't really understand a reading of the 2015 election which says they wouldn't get away with doing it again. Uh, it was pretty sticky. The yeah. Omni Shambles budget was pretty sticky for them at the time. Yeah, but ultimately, I mean, ultimately they, they were fine. It wasn't a deciding mm. factor in the um, election, no. I think no. in some ways it depends on how ambitious a conservative you are. So there, yes, you can look at the results and say, well, this shows that they can get away with that. But others would say, well, they got a majority of 12. You know, they won in spite of being seen as the nasty party and the party of the rich, not because of it. And they were aided by the fact that Labour had a terribly unpopular leader and weren't trusting the economy. But if you want to get a serious majority, if you want to get closer to 40% of the vote than 35%, then you need a conservatism that appeals to the whole country. And Cameron's, that's why Cameron's stated ambition is to be a one-nation Prime Minister. I know. Let's see what other Miliband slogans he, uh, he reappropriates <laughs> the next couple of years. Probably not that many, I'm guessing. Um, but for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Stephen. I'm joined by Martina Stevens, who was the Africa business correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, but is currently in Athens, where she'd previously covered the Eurozone. Um, first of all, I just want, um, Martina, because you're there, can you give us an idea of what the, the mood is like? I presume that it's one of those things where everybody knows that something's going on. Nobody's apathetic. Everybody is, is politically engaged. Yes, I mean, exactly. To be honest with you, Helen, people, Greece is, is sort of famously political, um, so it's not uncommon to overhear conversations at cafes among younger people or older people. And we've generally had a pretty robust turnout at elections, especially by European standards. But honestly, I was born and raised here. I've covered all the elections and voted in all of them. Um, and I have never seen a nation so politically engaged as it is right now with the, you know, the good and the bad stuff that that means. So you're actually overhearing arguments uh, between people who do or don't know each other as you walk down the street. Um, but the atmosphere is is darkened by the issue of the bank closures. As you probably know, banks have been closed here for a few days. Um, people don't really have access to the money. They can take out 60 euros a day. And in particular, older people, pensioners who don't use uh, cards, are totally dependent on cash. And you see, like, I've just been driving downtown. You see some pretty sort of heart-wrenching images of very old people queuing to take out just a little money to pay for this or that. And were people prepared for that? Because I think to the rest of us, it came as quite a shock when um, you know, Varoufakis walked out of the negotiations and kind of, and then there was this announcement. I don't know when it was, like 1 a.m. Saturday morning. Yeah. So had, had there been any, I mean, had people got a lot of money under the mattress or did it take them totally by surprise? Right. To be honest with you, um, I think there's a good chunk of people that have no money. So regardless of whether they saw this coming or not, they wouldn't have been able to take any money out anyway because they don't have any. 
Um, we have a story on the front page of the Wall Street Journal today examining exactly that question. There's speculation that there is a couple of dozen billion euros at least, uh, quote unquote, in mattresses. But there's actually no scientific and proper robust way of, of assessing that. But there is an understanding that in the days leading up to the collapse of the negotiations, people were drawing out money frantically, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, that doesn't really help the poorer people who, as I said, probably didn't have any money to take out, or indeed the older people who weren't as switched on in terms of what was going on and didn't, didn't do the same. Um, and according to our sources and our story today, uh, there isn't very much money left in the banking system. And if this, uh, if these withdrawals, even this kind of drop by drop withdrawal, 60 euros each continue, they're really, you know, the entire banking system is going to run out of cash. That doesn't mean that it's going to run out of liquid, like yeah. electronic money per se, but it does mean like you need physical cash in the ATMs and it looks like they're running out. And I'm interested if, if you're saying that it's causing a lot of misery, particularly among older people who don't have access to credit cards. Who do people in Greece feel is to blame? Is it being blamed? Do they feel that, you know, the Eurozone have pushed too hard or is there any blame being attached to Syriza for maybe overplaying their hand in negotiations? Yeah, I mean, you see all sorts of combinations of analysis. And I'm telling you, like, 100% every person in Greece right now is a little political analyst and trying to understand what's going on. I think uh, a lot of people, I think pretty much everyone is blaming Greece's creditors, so the Eurozone and the International Monetary Fund, not for this particular crunch now, but for the overall state of the country in the last five years and the fact that five years in and 245 billion euros in, in loans, we are still finding ourselves in this situation today. Uh, but I would say that a big chunk of the population are also very cognizant that Syriza pushed a negotiation very far and it got to this. Now, Syriza itself and through the Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, who made a national address again yesterday, are blaming the Eurozone for the fact that banks are closed. Indeed, Tsipras said Europe closed our banks, the Eurozone closed our banks. So there's a lot of a, you know, a blame game. Everyone's looking to how they're going to survive politically. But on a street level, uh, you see a mix of analyses and people, uh, you know, people, some people really believe in Syriza and actually believe, you know, the country is not going to leave the euro and he's doing a good job pushing the creditors further and further to get more concessions. And to talk about the, the referendum that's planned for the weekend, um, I have to say when we first saw the question for that came through, it made absolutely no sense. I presume it didn't make any more sense in Greek than it did when um, it had been translated. Oh, it made, it made Helen, it made less sense because <laughs> it's now actually 34 pages long full of tables. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's a bit more than a simple yes, no. So as I see it, the argument is now really between uh, some people who want to frame it as a kind of yes to the bailout uh, or no to the bailout. And some people who want to frame it as basically yes to Eurozone membership, maybe even EU membership. Which of those is winning? Like, what do people think that they're voting on? Um, again, from the sample of people I've spoken to, most, the majority of people, but not by no means the overwhelming majority, I would put it at around 50%, if not a little less, um, believe that this is a referendum on the currency. And actually, reading those 34 technical uh, analysis pages isn't really that critical for them. They're like, this, ignore, ignore the... Here's a cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Details of the question. This is about in or out, mm. um, and the European leaders have certainly framed it that way over the last few days. The government, however, and many of its supporters. Are completely rejecting that analysis. They're saying this is absolutely not about our Euro membership. This is about uh, just bowing our heads and agreeing to more policies of the type that have sank our, our economy for the last five years. Um, and in fact, Tsipras's argument is: give me a no, and I'll push a harder negotiation, and it will be better for us all. They don't dare kick us out of the Euro. And if there is a yes vote, presumably that means with Cyprus having been so strongly advocating the no vote that the the government can't survive that, can it? Well, actually, it's funny you say that because first of all, the finance minister Yanis Varoufakis literally uh, today, a few hours ago, came out and said that if it is a yes vote, he will resign. Mm. Uh, and uh, the prime minister two days ago in a national address hinted that that would be the case constitutionally, apart from the, the issue of pragmatic politics, constitutionally, he may actually be hard-pressed to remain in government after a, a yes vote. Yeah. Um, because effectively, it counts like a vote of no confidence. And in, in that case, what, what happens? Is there another election? Does is a caretaker government take over? Does okay. anyone know? <laughs> yeah, uh, no one knows. No one knows. Uh, I'm inclined, well, for constitutional reasons, again, uh, the situation will probably be that the President of the Republic would have to ask for the formation of a caretaker government to start with, uh, and elections would be called by that caretaker government, again, for constitutional reasons that can't be, for, you know, too, too far down the road. Um, but to be honest with you, Helen, there's also, you know, if you talk to people here about politics, about who's available to actually staff this government, caretaker government, or some people call it a national unity government or a national salvation government, so who's going to be on this cabinet? Who's going to be prime minister? And people are looking around and looking in parliament. And to be honest, you know, they feel that they don't really want any of these guys um, in government. So, you know, the, the, it's, it's going to be a very, very tough political situation here, apart from the uncertainty that comes with these transitional situations and the, and the, the elections themselves. Um, the real sort of bankruptcy of the political elite in the country on all parts of the spectrum and all parties is now becoming painful, more painfully evident than ever. Mm. It is, you know, our, our biggest hour of need. We may need to have a, a national unity government. Oh, and I think after all of that, after the signal holding so well, um, I've, I've lost Martina. So part of the, of the population. Oh. Uh, I just lost you for a moment, Martina, so I think that's probably a signal from the 4G gods that it's time to uh, to say thank you very much to you. And um, for any listeners, you can follow Martina on, on Twitter. Um, it's her, her username is, is just her, her full name. And um, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Helen. It's been a pleasure.
I'm Caroline Crampton and I'm here with John Ellidge and Anusha Keelian to talk about airports. Now there was some big airport news this week when the Davies Commission reported on whether we should get more runways at Heathrow, more runways at Gatwick. John, what happened? Yeah, so the, the Davies Commission was set up uh, I think nearly three years ago to uh, address this question of there is a political consensus that we need more airport capacity somewhere in London, the southeast, and that means an extra runway, which means you can fly more planes. So the Davis Commission was looking at uh, two options, really. One was an expanded Heathrow, um, which would be what's known as a sort of hub and spoke model, uh, which basically means that people from, from outlying places get relatively local flights to, to their nearest major airport from where they can get long haul flights to basically wherever they want. Uh, Heathrow's argument was very much, you know, we're already a hub, so it makes sense to make us a bigger hub. Uh, the other option on the table was an expanded Gatwick. Gatwick's argument was that they would also likely to be, like to be a hub and that two hubs are better than one. Um, as it turns out, the commission has decided that an expanded Heathrow would be the more economically viable option. Um, whether it's politically viable, however, is an entirely different question. Um, Anoush, can you say a bit about that? Because we know already they, as John said, kicked this into the long grass mm. by delaying the Commission's mm. report until after the election. Um, now it's come out, what's going to happen there? It's very politically uh, tricky, particularly for the Tories, because there's some marginal seats around there that they need to keep hold of. Um, but equally, it's difficult for David Cameron, because he once said, I think this is right, John, you correct me if I'm wrong, no ifs, no buts, um, there'll be no expansion of Heathrow. So it makes it very difficult for him, because he had this commission set up. He said that he would take the recommendations of the commission. And now that it's recommending that they expand Heathrow, he's in um, a tight spot, particularly as he's, as he's got Boris Johnson, a high profile figure, still mayor of London, and then Zach Goldsmith, potentially the next mayor of London, also a high profile figure on his back benches, saying that they absolutely oppose any expansion of Heathrow. And they've been very um, loud voices on that subject. So he's in a, he's in a tricky situation there. Um, luckily for him, the Labour Party doesn't have a leader yet. It's not really making hay from this. Um, I mean, Harriet Harman tried to push him on it at PMQs this week, um, but I'm not sure if it's had quite the cut through that it could. I was speaking to a Labour MP yesterday who was saying we should be, you know, we should be hammering this, uh, hammering them on this for weeks because it's a it's a business issue. We're hitting the Tories on business. It's a political issue that lots of their supporters live around Heathrow and in that sort of West London area. And also it's a personality issue because it, it, it attacks Cameron from the Boris Johnson and Zach Goldsmith um, sort of uh, mischief making wing of the party. Um, so that's the kind of situation that David Cameron's in at the moment. I personally think that it would be quite easy for David Cameron to shut this issue down by saying, um, yes, we would expand Heathrow because I said that I'd accept the recommendations of the independent inquiry. And then you're kind of blaming it on someone else. Um, but probably John will disagree with me on that because most people think that it's never going to happen. But we should say as well that the point is that um, this is the kind of local issue that marginal seats are won and lost on, isn't it? Mm. I think there is an, a, a sort of odd contrast between the, the two major London airports, though, in that Heathrow, as we've discussed, is in uh, quite a plush bit of West London. Uh, a lot of people there do quite well-paid jobs. They commute into central London to do them. The airport isn't that relevant to them. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of local people who work at the airport, but there's also a lot of rich people who would kind of like the whole thing to go away, um, which has been one of the things, I think, that motivated Boris Johnson's long and quixotic campaign to try and get Heathrow shut down altogether and rebuilt on an island somewhere in the Thames estuary. Gatwick, though, is a very different situation. There do seem to be people in in uh, t 
towns near Gatwick, such as Crawley, um, that would really quite like an expanded Gatwick because Gatwick is a major local, it is the major local employer for that area in a way that Heathrow isn't the major local mm-hmm. employer for West London. Um, so I, my instinct is that politically speaking, it probably is going to be easier to, to expand Gatwick. Because there's the local will to do so. Yeah. But um, now let's let's move on a little bit here because you uh, had a piece on your site, City Metric, this week saying that actually the UK doesn't need another hub, hub airport at all because we're already using one in Holland. Yeah, um, it's by a, a writer called Tom Forth who, who uh, works at the Open Data Institute and is a, a professional Yorkshireman. Um, <laughs> he, he ran the numbers and found that um, actually from much of the country, the hub airport people are using isn't Heathrow at all, it's Amsterdam Schiphol. So if you're in, I, I don't know, Humberside or the East Midlands or, or Glasgow and you want to get a long distance flight, that flight probably doesn't go from your local airport. So you need to fly to a bigger airport and go from there. For various reasons, there are, it's much easier to get to Schiphol than it is to get to London. There are just, there are just more flights that make that connection. Um, I think there are a number of reasons why this has happened. One is that uh, KLM, which I think is the Dutch national carrier, yeah. Um, this was very much his business model was to kind of turn Schiphol into a hub. So it's it's always laid on these well, relatively say, local flights. I've I've used it a lot. My family, my extended family is all in South Africa and that's how we get there. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're coming from the other end of the UK, it really doesn't matter mm. which airport you go via. You still have to change. So you, you, you go for the cheapest or quickest one. Mm. Um, so yeah, the KLM has, has very consciously made this a strategy. But also there is an argument that it's, it is because Heathrow isn't big enough. So, you know, there, you can only run a certain number of flights out of Heathrow. It's more profitable to run long-haul ones. So gradually, over a period of time, um, the, the, the shorter flights to, I don't know, Newquay or Edinburgh that just connect people around the UK have, have gradually got squeezed out. You can read this piece of information in two utterly contrasting ways. On one level, the argument that, that our writer Tom Forth made... Um, this suggests that the idea of, of investing in Heathrow as a national hub is nonsensical because it isn't one. Um, and if you are in uh, Yorkshire or wherever else, it doesn't make any difference to you how big mm. Heathrow is. And therefore, why should your tax money go towards it? But other people have looked at the data and come up with the exact opposite conclusion, which is, you know, at the moment, Heathrow is not big enough to be the hub that we need it to be. And these local flights are getting squeezed out. And we should build the capacity so they can go back in there. That's what sort of occurs to me when hearing that maybe the use of Amsterdam is sort of a symptom rather than cause that the reason why that's become a hub is because Heathrow isn't big enough. So if Heathrow was big enough, then we wouldn't have to use Schiphol so much. That's that's probably true. Um, there's also an argument in the longer term as to whether the hub and spoke model is you know going to die anyway. Um, partly because... If you if you we're talk, all the airports we're talking about are kind of perched on the northwest corner of Europe, it's not necessarily on the way anywhere. Mm. Um, there are other regions that are investing a lot of money into uh, bigger aviation capacity, um, particularly around uh, the Gulf. Uh, Dubai Airport is is on course to be the biggest international airport in the world. And if you look at a map of the world, it often makes more sense to go via Dubai than to go via either London or Amsterdam. Mm. So. You can ask whether this is a, a stupid thing to be investing in at all. Also, it's increasingly easy to do long-haul flights with smaller planes. Mm. Um, 
which would mean that over time it might become possible to do more um, what are called point-to-point -point flights, direct ones, rather than relying on the hub-and-spoke model. So it's possible that if we're spending 30 billion on, on building a British hub airport, then in 30 years' time, that's going to look like a really stupid use of public money. And is mm. you nodding there? Do you think we've, we've left it too late now? Yes, I think so. And I also think um, part of that, which, which is an argument against building another runway at Heathrow, is what John was saying, the, point, the rise of point-to-point -point flights, um, especially with uh, cheap airlines, budget airlines. So people often take holidays which where they have to fly two or three hours um which is an argument in favor of um, building another runway at gatwick because it caters for that market um and i think i think that's called the constellation model where you have lots of different airports um in an in one area um but which cater for a smaller number of people at each airport because of um, to reflect the shorter flights that people are taking rather than these big long-haul flights where they have to change at a hub airport. But I suppose politicians love a big totemic infrastructure project, don't they? So uh, judging by Cameron's reaction so far, he's not going to let it die yet, right? There's an enormous amount of pressure from British business. And there is an argument that actually, you know, most of the a growing share of the world's economic activity is going to be happening in places uh, that we don't necessarily have huge numbers of direct flights to at the moment. You know, um, obscure cities in China that you've never heard of, but are bigger than London, those kind of places. Um, so there is certainly an economic argument that if we want to keep trading with the world, we do need connections with these places. And if we want to do that, then we need bigger airports. The counter-argument, which we've actually not discussed at all and should probably mention because otherwise, being the new statesman, we will get letters, <laughs> is that building airport capacity when the earth is starting to boil is possibly a bad thing to do. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm thinking a lot about that, given how hot I am today. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly hot right now. Um, whether that's got anything to do with having too many planes in the sky or not is a different question. Um, but yeah, there, there are also, apart from the kind of uh, the NIMBY opposition to, to building an airport here. There's also quite a lot of environmental campaigners who don't think we should expand airports at all. So um, on the whole, I'm really glad that I'm not the one who gets to make this decision. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Thanks yeah. very much, John Nanoush. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Music.